You're muted, Laura. There you go. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dr. DeVoe. <laughs> Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. It is a week. And it is our week uh, where we bring in our uh, think tank, and we are excited to have you here. We are joined by returners, Beth Grampetro, Gage Paynes, and Corey Davis. This week, we will be talking about two issues that are uh, of top priority, and we're also going to be thinking about the last... Uh, semester and what are some big news on our own plates and our own thoughts. So welcome. Thank you for being here and we're excited to have you. So thank you very much. And so, hey, you know what? It is uh, it is a typical December morning where all I wanted to do is is just wrap presents because I have all these presents and I'm looking at them right now. Um, so as we are loading in and saying hi to everybody, uh, please uh, introduce yourselves again to the crowd. Uh, I know we are going to be replaying this on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, iHeartRadio, as well as here on Fireside. Um, every month we do a think tank show and I'm thrilled to have you all here. So tell us how you are all doing. How's the holidays treating you and give us uh, your kind of uh, litmus test in terms of how you're feeling this holiday season. Are you done? Are you not done with your shopping? Does it matter to you? Beth, you have a small child. So I'm going to start with you because you probably have the most stuff to do. So let, why don't we go with you? Hi. Um, <clears throat> so. An intro first, I guess. So my name is yeah. Beth Graham Petro. I'm the director of health promotion and wellness and chief wellness officer at Simmons University in Boston. And uh, Laura is correct. I have a daughter who is seven, almost eight, and so you know, Christmas is a big deal. Um, but I don't know. I feel like Christmas this year and this season, the way I did about Thanksgiving, which is, oh my God, it's now. It's in a couple <laughs> weeks. I'm not ready. Nothing is. Done. We have a tree up. Nothing is done tree. other than that. Good. So, a little so, behind is how I feel, but like optimistically behind. <laughs> is there is there a hot gift? Is there like a you know? Is there a hot gift um, season? I think so. It's luckily not something my child has asked for, but I the the chatter seems to be about some kind of toy hamster that like has babies. Okay. And by has babies, I mean gives like the action of having not just possessing the babies so, so but she doesn't seem to know about that and okay. we're going to keep it that okay. way <laughs> we're not going to do that one okay well I don't since, think so. uh, you know i do know your daughter and i will not buy that for your daughter okay. <laughs> I, I appreciate gonna, that i'm not gonna <laughs> be shooting the baby uh hamsters out as an option <laughs> so there you go um <laughs> Gage, how are you doing with uh, things? Reintroduce yourself and, and how are things going in your world? Things are going well. I'm Gage Payne. I'm currently serving as Associate Dean in the College of Nursing at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center. I'm at about four months in, not quite four months into this new world, and um, find myself um I had a meeting with the student affairs staff today and like three questions, more chances to learn, you know, so um, learning a lot about being in this academic world and in this health sciences world. Um, it's 
got a lot of similarities and a lot of things that make me go, hmm. hmm. So as far as the holiday question, uh, different this year because I will go home just a couple of days before and then Christmas Eve dinner for 10 or 12 at our house on Christmas Eve night. So short turnaround of preparation time when I get home. So it's all good. Fantastic. We're all and mostly Corey, adults. We don't have a lot of little ones around, so that makes it a little simpler. That's okay. That's okay. We, we're all children at Christmas. Well, that is true. We can all, yeah, we can do that. Yeah. And then, uh, so Corey, how are things for you? Hey, Laura. Things are great. My name is Corey Davis. Again, for everybody, I uh, work in the Dean of Students Office at Champlain College in Burlington, Vermont. This is our last week of class. Finals week starts next week, and that or finals week starts next week, and then students are moving out of the residence halls by noon on Saturday, the seventeenth. Uh, not that anyone's counting we love you please be gone for a month or so um christmas is feeling good we got our tree this past weekend and um this is only my second christ or our second christmas here in vermont and it seems as though everybody and their mother sells evergreen christmas trees here you go to the grocery store you pass a movie theater lot i was at the city council last night there was someone in the city council parking lot selling christmas trees and hawking wreaths and uh maybe it's just a great time to be in in uh, Vermont, there are a lot of trees, so maybe that's a good gimmick that I could try to get into. Um, I'm, I'm also quite bummed that right now here in Burlington is 45 degrees and heavy rain, oh. which is quite quite unfortunate for early December. So no good skiing or riding yet, um, but maybe coming up in a couple of weeks. So one of those campuses that I worked at was Indiana University of Pennsylvania, which was located in Indiana, Pennsylvania. And it is the birthplace of Jimmy Stewart. And Jimmy Stewart, as you may recall, is in one of the most popular Christmas movies, It's a Wonderful Life. And Indiana, Pennsylvania is also the Christmas tree capital of the world, as they have proclaimed themselves. I don't know if it is something that they had to apply for or if they just put up a sign. And so uh, when I was working there, I was able to, we actually allowed students to have live trees in their residence hall room, but they had to, I love that you, <laughs> Beth and Gage just went, what? <laughs> the faces. But here's the best part. You could have live trees in your room, but you had to bring them to the facilities office where they could be treated with a flame resistant spray which was probably asbestos like i am i don't know if it was for fact that it was asbestos but i believe it was asbestos or some kind of asbestos related item so there you go and i just have to this reminds me of an old residence hall story of somebody who lifted the christmas tree out of our out of our lobby one year um they were not the world's greatest thieves we followed the trail of needles <laughs> tinsel <laughs> ornaments back to the next door residence hall and up the stairs like the into their room it, <laughs> it was, was like the Grinch stole christmas the as he was dragging it up the hill <laughs> exactly <laughs> right it's <laughs> amazing we should just do a, a, a a, a show of misdeeds around the holiday. <laughs> like, because that could be a full show. So there you go. Um, so I uh, want to switch gears a little bit. One of the things that I uh, want to do every month with the uh, Think Tank show is really to talk about, like, what are some key issues of the day? And I try really hard to make sure that I pick 
uh, topics based on who the think tank members are and uh, make sure that we can we can uh, take full advantage of what the expertise is. And, and I wanted to highlight uh, mental health on campus this semester. Um, I don't know about what you are all seeing. I'm going to ask uh, you all to kind of give me an idea, but I know from just from teaching and uh, consulting with several campuses this semester, we're really seeing, you know, what we've been seeing in the last few years, continuous uptick and continuous needs um, that folks are having. Um, what I'm hearing from directors of counseling centers is the pandemic and and knowing that mental health is an important thing um, have only, you know, before the pandemic, people would always say we always needed more counselors. We needed more counseling services. We needed more opportunities. Um, but now we're in a situation where now they know we exist. We always were worried about, well, we want people to know we exist. Well, now they know you exist. And that's actually creating more need. Um, both Beth and Gage have spoken with my grad students this semester, so I want to thank both of you. And Gage, I do want to highlight the fact that you were the most quoted panelist of all my panelists by my students. So I don't good know or bad? I think it's good. <laughs> um, so clearly, I owe you something. But um, you know, but Beth, when you spoke to to my students, and we were you were on a panel regarding health, wellness, counseling, disability services. Um, you were talking about this idea of, of counseling and counseling centers and this idea of not necessarily always needing more counselors, but needing other services. Can you talk a little bit about that as you, you know, kind of frame that for our listeners? Because I think a lot of times we think we just have to hire more people. Um, and and maybe you do need to hire people, but what kind of people? So talk a little bit about that. And then I want to switch gears a bit uh, to talk about how institutions are responding to the needs of students with mental health emergencies? Sure. So I think it's actually a yes and. It's, this is like a why not both situation because yeah. um, I think there are many campuses where more counselors would be a good thing and are needed, especially in the immediate term. If you are a campus where there are very long waits um, for people to get in the door for counseling, and they are in crisis or even not even in crisis, if they just are in need, then that's a problem that needs solving. But that is, you know, in a way putting a bandaid on things or kind of, you know, sticking your finger in, in like the hole in the wall to try to get the water to stop coming through. And so at the same time, there needs to be, I think, more thought given to upstream intervention. And by that, I mean, what are the things that your college or university is doing to set up an environment that supports student mental health? Um, I'm about to talk about this as though it's very easy and quick, and it is absolutely right. not. <laughs> there's a reason There's a reason that I would say not many schools are doing this very well, or, are, or there are a lot who are trying, but like it takes time. Um, you need to be thinking about everything from you know, is there is there work that can be done from a health promotion and a public health perspective from a behavior change and skill building place of like, is there work that can be done to help students who are maybe struggling with some mental health issues, but they're not necessarily the students who are um, dealing with a diagnosed uh, mental illness. They might not need long-term counseling, but they might benefit from a couple of sessions and then you know, referral to a group, not group therapy, but like a psychoeducational group that can teach them coping skills for anxiety 
or coping skills for depression um, or any number of things. So that's, that's one thing. Um, also, is there, you know, can you partner with um, the folks on your campus doing the academic work and talk with your faculty about, you know, do they understand how to notice when a student is struggling? Do they have some nuance for that? Because I also think, I think we've tried to do this. Like, I think people in my positions on a lot of campuses have been like, let's train the faculty and show them how to recognize a student in crisis. And then you get like one of two results, which is you get like people on the end of the spectrum who are like, oh no, everyone's a cry. Laura cried today. Right. She's clearly like, this is a clearly huge deal. she's in crisis. Yeah. yeah, this is a crisis versus like not wanting to share with the university because maybe they feel they can handle it. Maybe they feel right. that, you know, and all kinds of different things happen there. But so not just, not just sharing with them, you know, this is how to recognize it. Cause I think, sorry, I'm being a bit scattered, but to back no, up a okay. bit. it's okay. I, I started think, the show scattered, so don't worry. <laughs> it's a theme for today. It's a theme. I think that something that was not new in 2007, but certainly got a lot of attention in 2007 mm-hmm. when the shooting at Virginia Tech happened was this idea of like, oh, this student who perpetrated that shooting had written things in English class, I believe it was, that were very concerning. And the faculty member did try to talk to people about it and said that her concerns were not heard. Anyway, and there and this idea of like behavioral intervention teams became very much more public to the public. Like they existed before then, um, right. but it became sort of more of a known thing. And I think that an incident like that, understandably, led a lot of people on the academic side to be like, if a student in my class does anything even remotely weird, mm-hmm. they could be the net, you know, they could right. do a crime next week. So I need to jump on that. Right. And so I think we've done a good job of saying like, hey, we have a care team or a bit team or both. And here's like why you refer someone to that. But the middle stuff maybe has gotten lost. Yeah. And, and the stuff that's like, okay, so Laura did come to class today and she's struggling with something and she is sad or depressed or anxious, what do I do in that situation? Where do I send her? And then are there resources for a student that maybe just maybe needs some more skills, some more coping strategies that are not one-on-one therapy? Right. I think also there, um, there is room on a lot of campuses to work with faculty around um, universal design for learning. Mm. And around just the idea of setting up your classroom to be a place. And I say that classroom sort of figuratively, not your, although your physical space is important too, but like, are students willing to talk to you if they Mm -hmm. are struggling? Mm -hmm. Are they comfortable saying they need extra time on something? Not as like an accommodation, but as a regular, like life happens and I could use an extra couple days. Do they, is that a policy you can extend of like, Hey, if you communicate with me before the deadline, we can work things out almost all the time. Um, Have you looked at when your stuff is due? Mm -hmm. Are your assignments due at eight in the morning or midnight? Because that generally encourages a student to stay up late or stay up all night getting an assignment done as opposed to saying it's due at five o'clock on this day. Um, So I think there's just a lot that, we can do if we're able to gather everyone and kind of um, convene everyone around this idea that we all need to be working together to support student mental health and that the and that one-on-one counseling is not the only support and should in fact not necessarily be the support for everyone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I also think and sorry we might be getting to this later Mm -hmm. (laughs) but 
we are still in a pandemic. It is a different phase of that pandemic, but you know, our students are dealing with continuing to deal with things that most of us didn't deal with as students. Um, We, and we're going to talk about this, you know, toward the end with people leaving the field, like we are dealing with things we've never dealt with before. It's a little disappointing that we haven't used this huge event in our world to really scale back a bit and say, what do we need to keep doing and what do we not need to keep doing and what needs to be done differently because it's not working. No. And yeah. It will. We've said this before in various environments is that this idea of whether it be our own personal life, um, and what we, what is necessary and what isn't necessary and getting better adjusted to this idea of what's, what's super important. It's that old thing where when I talk to someone, they say, well, this is urgent. I'm like, is it urgent or is it important? Like there's a difference. Okay. Um, is it necessary or is it, is it absolutely bonker? Like we need this because we can't function without it. Okay. Or is it nice to have, you know? And to your point, and I think I want to push it to Gage for a second, because Gage works with faculty. She's been in the vice uh, chancellor role, has had lots of exposure to faculty over the course of her storied career. You know, one of the things that you brought up, Beth, that I think is super important, and I think it does lend to some of the news stories that we're hearing, is that we're pushing a lot on the the shoulders of the faculty. Um, And is that the right place to have this? Is this a place where faculty are going to be able to, they're like, look, I want to teach. And what we saw during the pandemic, um, especially when we pivoted to the world of uh, hybrid or distance learning, I'm not going to call it online learning because that's a different thing altogether, but distance learning, hybrid learning, what you heard a lot from faculty is I need to learn how to teach again. And I need to be able to set my priorities straight in terms of learning. Um, How do I figure out on a screen if someone's having a tough time, especially if they don't have the camera on, How do I tell if I'm not in a three-dimensional environment with someone? And now that we're back in a three-dimensional environment, there's a lot of people, I will tell you this, I just had my last class for my semester of teaching grad students and I did not have one single week where I had 100% attendance because people were more aware of I'm not doing well or I have a fever, I'm not coming to class. Grant, guarantee, I love that. I love that you have a fever and you're not coming to class. I don't love that you're sick. But my point, my question for you, Gage, is when do we ask too much of the faculty? What's appropriate for faculty to be able to raise the the caution flag on? And how do we support the faculty in knowing that they've made the right decision? Well, I think I think one of the things it goes back to one of the points Beth was making is that that the default often becomes send people to the counseling center, right? There's something going wrong, send them to the counseling center. And I think we might do better to message, here are some places where you can ask for consultation about what's the right resource that's available. Because sometimes it's simply, let's have them sit down and talk with a student affairs staff member, right? There yeah, might be yeah. somebody in the dean's office that could help them. Um, there might be somebody who, you know, they just need a listening ear. And 
rightly or wrongly, you can't do that. And there's lots of good reasons why they shouldn't. Um, but let's walk downstairs, particularly in a college. Let's walk downstairs to the college student affairs office and talk with somebody or the academic affairs office downstairs. I mean, they, you know, it doesn't have to always be to the counseling center. And so helping faculty understand their resources as more broad and more consultative as opposed to just a handoff. And what I think feel good to many people, there are going to be faculty who just want to hand off. But there are many faculty who will be good partners and engaged in saying, let me find the right place for you to go and here's somebody I can call to ask about that. And so really thinking that there are more options. Um, I always like to brag when we're talking about counseling and mental health about my former institution, UT Austin, because the, the goal of the president at that time was increasing retention. And so one of the ways we talked about increasing retention was, and we got money from the provost's office to do this program. And then, as we suspected, colleges wanted it. And we said, okay, great, help us pay for it, was we had people who were hired by the counseling center, supervised by the counseling center, employees by the counseling center, but their offices were in academic affairs and admin, advising offices in the colleges. Ah, okay. And so an academic advisor who had a student who was upset or having a problem could literally walk down the hall and say, here, talk to this person Love rather it. than say, I need you to go four buildings over three streets mm -hmm. to the right and find somebody to talk to. Through right. A, through a door that says right. counsel. Yeah, right. Which, Absolutely. Which at certain points in our careers, that was harder to send someone to. Absolutely. Than it may be today. Yeah, that's true. The other thing was that there was the consultative part. There was somebody there who faculty and academic advisors could consult with. The academic advisors could, um, the, I'm sorry, the counselors learned more about the academic experience directly. It was a really great marriage. I don't know if the program's still going on. I'd be surprised if it wasn't because it was expanding when I left there. Mm -hmm. um, but the point of it is, is going where students are are and helping faculty know where those options are. But yeah. the, the thing that was most important to me, there were several important things, but one of the things that was interesting was it changed the demographics of who was seeing counseling. There were more men and there were more people of color because those are two large demographic groups that often had trouble making it through those six steps and four doors to get to the counseling center, right? And just yeah. walking down the hall to have a chat with somebody down the hall, that's not so intimidating. And so it really changed who was being seen and served. And then went into all the things that Beth was talking about. What's the right level of service? What's the right resource? What's the right, you know, and really helping our faculty and our students understand it's not always one week, one weekly appointments for an hour, that that's what a student needs. Um, and, and I also think giving faculty the power to be good listeners and that that's okay too, because sometimes that's all that's necessary. And, and yeah. there's that. And if you're not idea. sure, pick up the. I was going to say, sorry, if you're not sure, pick up the phone and ask somebody for help to decide Absolutely. whether good listening was enough or you do need to help them get somewhere else. 
that was always the thing that when I had a faculty member and it would happen when I was vice president, they would walk in my office and I was at a small college. And so it was a very different dynamic. And the, the relationship that I had with faculty and Beth knows some of these faculty who would just charge into my office and be like, I need to talk to you right now, you know, um, but they didn't want to. It, it, there were some of them who, to your point, Gage, and depending on the, the several campuses I've worked at. There are your, there's always going to be your faculty member or your staff member. It's just, we can't just shoulder this on the faculty. There are going to be members of the student services staff that, that have really no interest in having those kind of difficult conversations and want to just push off. Um, or there's a concern. I don't want to do this wrong. I want to make sure I'm doing this, this in a good way. I don't want to make a bigger problem of this than I need to have. But I think that, you know, when this when they came in the office, to your point, it's they want to do good things and they want to make sure the student has the best opportunities available to them to make their life better, um, to either de-stress or deal with the stress or whatever the case may be. It's for that reason that I'm still kind of shocked that there are campuses. So you're, to your point, Gage, what you brought up, that is not a new program at UT. That was years ago. Um, yeah. You know, what Beth's talking about over the years of her experiences, seeing progression, seeing us be able to bring in uh, good practice, whether it be BIT teams or care teams or, or, or any other level of service. Corey, I want to draw your attention to something that is in the CNN ran a story this week. Uh, current students and an advocacy group are suing Yale University and its governing body, alleging systemic discrimination against students with mental health disabilities. According to a lawsuit filed in Connecticut federal court, the lawsuit alleges that the university discriminated against students with mental health disabilities and forced students to withdraw from the school after showing them severe, so showing severe mental health disability symptoms. Now that the question about the about this goes into, we don't know what symptoms people were dis, uh, displaying. We don't know all the information, but this reminds me of other cases that have come up in the past where it's, you know, you're going to withdraw because you're displaying some kind of action, you know. Corey, you work in the conduct field, you work in opportunities where maybe some difficult situations and difficult decisions have to have to be made. When you see something like this, you know, as you're considering it, if you had someone come to you and say, we're having issues, we wanted we want people to withdraw because we don't have the space for them. They're not they're they're having an impact on our overall experience of our students. What are your thoughts on on this kind of action? And what does it do really for higher ed? As people are looking at, is this a place to send students who may be struggling with with maybe more severe mental health issues? And then I'm going to ask Beth for her her thoughts on this as well. Yeah, definitely, Laura. I, what comes to mind is thinking about you know under the ADA, students have to be otherwise qualified to be a student at your institution, and I would imagine that's what Yale is going to try to try to hang its hat on. And I would also imagine that's what the students are likely thinking. You know, I am qualified to be here, you know, and using you know, some of their mental health um, or sharing that along as something that should be protected and supported through the ADA. I haven't dove down specifically into the lawsuit, but just kind of hearing you talk a little bit about it, that's kind of my, my quick gut reaction. Um, I do manage um, our care team here at work, and I do see students who have um, – 
chronic and persistent challenges of, of all kinds. And I think a really healthy conversation that we have is what's the balance of providing support to make sure a student can continue and succeed. And the other side of that is, you know, what's the right thing for the student? Um, and I think I've been, I've been surprised and pleasantly surprised that we as an institution have really tried to encourage, you know, the student needs to make these choices. Um, we've still maybe talked about certain situations, but we have really hasn't like haven't gone to any type of administrative withdrawal. And I think that's the right thing to do. Um, I think we have found it much more um, ethically the right thing to do and say, you know, we are here to support the student. Um, they need to make that choice on their own out of concern for, you know, a similar lawsuit as Yale, I would imagine. And, you know, theoretically, the student could have a variety of challenges that are impacting their experience, and they could be a fantastic academic student, um, you know, and to make sure that those things aren't always connected together. Um, so I've been fortunate to find that that campus environment. But I could also very much imagine, you know, there's a lot of you know, people see these students every day, a faculty member as a tool for myself in the classroom, they see 25 to 30 other students who I might never interact with. So they allow the care team to level up our supports and our abilities. Um, and I've had those conversations with faculty and they, they want the best for the student. Laura, just as you were talking about, they want the best for the student and they feel for the student. And we're trying to balance all kinds of different um, goals and, and aims from there. I think a, a generational challenge that we've encountered, that I've, I've certainly encountered, is students' really high level of comfort talking about their mental health challenges. Um, and then when you get to the folks who are more seasoned about triaging those challenges, you naturally go into a triage mode. Right. Yet, if it's an assistant professor or the dean of, a, of an academic department, without that maybe knowledge that they've gained, they might see every nail has the hammer of the care team. And, and the care team being a positive thing, but the nail and hammer analogy and metaphor, I think, really fits. Um, and so what we've really tried to do over this semester and will continue to do is, you know, if Laura you know, comes to your class crying – she might that might be a very natural grief reaction to something g going on that doesn't necessarily mean that there is an emergency or something needs to be done but it's okay it's like laura are you are you okay is there anything you need as opposed to well well i saw laura crying i'm not going to talk to them about it but i'm going to submit a report right. um that's that's halfway there but i think you know we're really trying to encourage our faculty to i that might be uncomfortable but try to go an extra few inches or an extra mile. And similarly to retention, I think retention now being everyone's responsibility on campus, mental health concern, I think now everyone's responsibility on campus. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I think one of the things that this story reminds me of is when you have processes that don't talk to each other on a campus. If a student needs to take a withdrawal, whatever the reason being, you want to make sure that your your leave of absence, your withdrawal policy, whatever the case may be, whatever whatever lingo you use, is is in agreement. Because when you have a care team making certain recommendations and it's not talking to your leave of absence policy, um, or the conversation you're having with the student, and you're not aware of how this might impact their academic progress how it might impact their ability to start 
the ticking back on their student loans. Right now we're in a weird situation as far as that is concerned, but there is, uh, there is a certain amount of that that I have seen in the past that when an institution does not have strong policies that talk to each other, the students put in, a, in an even worse situation. And I would have to venture to, to think that if you peel back on this lawsuit or any other lawsuits related to forced withdrawal or recommended withdrawal, it is there's something in there that says maybe if these policies were more in agreement, we may not be in as, as egregious a situation. Beth, I want your thoughts on this, and then we're going to think we're going to move over to the retention of our of our actual staff who are doing this hard work. So go ahead, Beth. So I read the original article. I think it was in the Washington Post. I forget what outlet it was about the Yale situation, and some of it just sounded very familiar because I think that it is extremely common and reasonable that a student who gets reaches the point of attempting suicide on a college campus there is going to be a conversation about is this a place either a break from being there or some pretty specific um, standards for continuing mm -hmm. at that point yeah. um, I did think that it was interesting um, some of the parts of their reentry policy as described in that article and some of the language around it Mm -hmm. Um, as I think that it wasn't, I kind of, you know, I think whenever this stuff gets into the media beyond something like inside higher ed or the Chronicle, it's very often like they're throw Yale is throwing people out of school for being depressed. And it's like, right. well, that's not yeah, really what's right, happening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and when you drill down, it's like, okay, so there are some students who have been through serious mental health crises whilst, while they were at Yale. Um, and you could insert the name of almost any school in there. So like truly not trying to beat on Yale here. That's, this no. just happens to be who we're talking about today. Um, they're having, they're experiencing these crises. They might have attempted um, suicide. They might've otherwise like done something that is dangerous to their well being. It is the responsibility of the institution to say, Hey, part of being qualified to be here, you do have to be qualified to be here academically. You also need to be qualified to be part of this community. Yep. in a way that isn't disruptive to others and in a way that isn't going to make us, particularly if you're a residential student, we bear some responsibility for your safety. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to be like, say, yes, I believe this person is safe to be here if mm -hmm. we don't believe that in the yep. moment. Yep. Um, I did think it was interesting in a not great way that they had some language as part of their policy that was pretty final. Like it felt, I think it said in the article I read that they had since changed it, but that initially the, ang the language in their reentry policy was very much like you have to reapply. Yeah. Which yeah. is not. There was a reapplication requirement. Yeah. It was really yeah. not like an accurate description of what they were even having students do. And it really made it sound like, oh, you were qualified to come here, but now because you struggled with, with a health issue, you are no longer qualified. Right. You have to prove to us again that you're qualified, which, which is not, I, I too would have questions and concerns as a right. student. I flunked um, the, uh, the, this is not the same thing, but when I had to retake my driver's test, when I moved from Massachusetts to Pennsylvania, I almost flunked it because I didn't remember how to do a three-point <laughs> turn. Okay. And in like a really strong three-point turn, not just like, uh, you know, now I've had my license several years and I'm kind of just 
making my way around and, and you yeah. know, that sort of thing. And I was like, what do you mean I have to learn how to do this again? So there you go. So if I had to reapply to Yale, that may not happen if I barely just got my driver's license again. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> So I, I feel like no college would accept me right now. Anyway, um, <laughs> but I, I just think that oh, there's some, <laughs> there are some, someone, um, there's always a place for me at the Dairy Queen. Anyway, um, I think that the issue here is one that comes up so often. And this just happens to be the sort of venue in which it's coming up this time is mm-hmm. that there's concern for the individual student. And then there's the fact that we are concerned with the needs of the whole community and all in my case 1800 undergrads plus a bunch of other you know like right the the needs of all of those people need to be concerned need to be a concern also and i think that um you know Corey makes a good point that yale will absolutely lean on like well you have to be qualified to be here and if you you know are not able to care for yourself in this way then then we can't say that you are Mm -hmm. um but i do think i hope that they are looking at this experience and taking care with, as you said, are the policies consistent? Are people talking to each other? And are they not like being frankly disrespectful to the student in the situation by implying that like, because you have this issue, you suddenly are maybe not academically qualified to be here, which is not, (laughs) that just, that seems really out there to me. No, it, it reminds me uh, at one point, and Corey, I'll, I'll let you jump in, but it, was, yeah. it reminds me at one point, uh, not just one point, but that I can recall several conversations I've had with uh, very tired, very fed up, and very just get them out uh, doctors who were managing mental health emergencies uh, of my students who would be sent to emergency rooms. They would be uh, in psychiatric environments in the hospital. And then the, and then the doctor would say, well, I'm returning them to your campus. And I say, well, are they able to be independent? So to your point, Beth, in the environment, we want them to be safe. We want them to be safe in the environment. And and I've had several doctors say, no, you're going to have to watch them. I said, well, that's not going to happen because we don't have this is not who we are. We are a residence hall. We are not a psychiatric facility. And uh, that is not, and then you get into a fight. And, you know, when you're fighting with me at three o'clock in the morning on a Thursday night, you know what? That's, the, you're going to get a certain type of person. Uh, Corey, your thoughts? And then we're going to jump over to uh, uh, the future of the profession. Yeah, I was just going to um, jump onto what Beth had said, you know, in the, the disrespectful angle to, to students. I'm going to go another couple levels up and say that's the discriminatory impact mm-hmm. of the student. That's it. And, and I think that's, I'm sure, what the students will say as well. Absolutely. Um, so we want to switch gears a bit um, and mental health. It is related because, uh, you know, it's not just about the salaries. It's not just about maybe the hours that our staff are being asked at student affairs staff are being asked to participate in. It is important. Um, but what I keep hearing from folks uh, is uh, the mental uh, toll that all of that uh, results in. And, uh, so Beth just dropped her phone and it was the funniest thing I've seen all day. I'm just going to say it right now. She just flipped it over and I was like, you know, there you go. The only thing would have been better is if you dropped it in your cup of noodles that you had before the show. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so that's that. All right. We're going to pull it together. 
pull it together. Okay, so there you go. Um, so I'm going to read off here. We have an article from uh, November 17th, just this past uh, couple weeks ago from uh, Inside Higher Ed. More than a third of student affairs workers uh, are uh, considering leaving the field. 37% uh, of student affairs professionals are looking to leave their roles, according to research conducted by Sky Factor Benchwork, Macmillan Learning Survey Arm, um, in partnership with the Southern Association for College Student Affairs. Interesting. Uh, the study, which surveyed 324 student affairs professionals in 38 states and Canada, found that the student affairs professionals looking for new jobs, over half were exclusively looking outside the higher education sector. The dissatisfaction stems from low pay, poor work-life balance, and a little opportunity to move up in their organization. Only 17% reported making a competitive salary, 27% expressed comfort with their work-life balance, and 13% said they feel highly satisfied with their growth, excuse me, growth opportunities. Um, staff would likely stay if their career advancement opportunities improve, said Jason Wallace, Associate Professor of Higher Education and Student Affairs Administration at the University of Southern Mississippi. Um, unlike faculty who have a career pathway, many of them don't have a track. Um, and so uh, it's interesting because this is where we're at right now. We're seeing a lot of uh, a lot of openings at institutions. Uh, my guest last night in my final class uh, was actually uh, the folks who run the placement exchange for NASPA, uh, which is uh, the biggest uh, opportunity for for entry level folks to find uh, their first uh, job in the field. Um, and so as we're looking at these openings, one of the things that, that we're hearing from uh, campuses is that the pool isn't what they want it to be. And the pushback uh, from some folks is the pool is not what it, you want it to be because you're going to have to actually train up these people. You're not going to get people who are right off of the, the mat able to do the work. Um, Gage, I want your thoughts on this because you've been uh, you've been around the block the longest on the call, so uh, on the show. So you're, we're going to defer to you uh, because uh, you've actually mentored a lot of people. You have had that opportunity to have con frank conversations with folks. You've written a book on leadership. You know about what it means to kind of find your way and and know it's time to go. Is that a failure of the field that people are leaving or is it an opportunity? It's, it's not a failure of the field. There's so many, that was such a, a complex set of things you threw into that question, Laura, because part of, part of our reality as a field within higher education is that we are not completely in control of our destiny when it comes to hiring. Um, and so, you know, to point fingers at student affairs and say you're not doing well enough when, you know, somebody has just been fighting a battle with HR to get someone reclassified to another level with another pay range that doesn't exactly fit with the institutional play, pay plan is not understanding the reality. They only supervise 2.5 people gauge not yeah, not three, three people oh. yes that's correct and no and we don't know what consequence of error might be and why you know in working in disabilities or conduct or the care team might 
rate something different in the scheme. So, so, so student affairs exists within an environment that is struggling right now. Yes. And so that's all very real. Mm -hmm. And I, as I was a mover, right? I was one of those folks who didn't put my entire life at an institution. And, you know, what I joke is I stayed at UT Austin the first time for 11 years because my boss kept giving me new things to do. Yeah. I had two titles in that time. I don't know. I was there 11 years. I had some pay raises. But early on, my boss wanted to give me a pay raise after my first six months. She couldn't do a mid-year pay raise. That wasn't legal or allowed by the state. So I got my first Mac computer. It was a Mac Plus. So that's how long ago it was. Didn't have a color. No, I didn't. Oh, no, no. It wasn't that fancy. <laughs> I had a dot matrix printer, you understand. Oh, okay. So. All right. But that was a big deal. So that's what she could do. She could do something to express appreciation for all I had done over that short period of time, but she couldn't give me pay, right? I came in as an assistant dean. There were only so many titles that she could give me. So people who want to show progression by title or who want continual pay raises, public higher education, particularly higher education in general, is going to be frustrating to them. And so we have some mismatch of expectations between people coming into the field of higher education and the the milieu that we're in, right? I've always been in, right? Mm -hmm. um, so there's that piece. I say I left because the dean gate ran out of new things to give me to do. And she would not retire on my schedule. So I had a shot at her job. I need you to go. Yeah. <laughs> so I had to leave, right? Right, right. Um, and so, but at various points, I reached the top of what I was going to learn, grow, whatever. No hard feelings on anybody's part. It was time for me to go someplace else. So going someplace else is not something I think is a bad thing. I think it's very healthy. I never want anybody to stay in a place that is toxic. Okay, let's put that as a bottom line. However, if you are looking for greener fields, I think many people are going to find disappointment because the work world right now is complicated, difficult, confusing, mm -hmm. um, the mismatch between what employers kind of want and what employees kind of want is more than I've ever seen it. I think, I think you ought people who are thinking to leave. And I believe this at any time, I think people who are thinking to leave should do a lot of soul searching about why they're leaving and what they're looking for mm -hmm. and make sure that they really can't find those where they are because the world is not always greener. And, and sometimes the only way to move up, the only way to, to grow for yourself is to go somewhere else and more power to us. Cause I was one of those. Right. So, so there's just a lot happening here and there are more people. I mean, I, you know, campus after campus, 500 vacancies, 800 vacancies, yada, yada, yada. But I, one of my continual frustrations is that people in the, the the matrix building world of human resources don't understand the difference between the work we do in student affairs and the work that gets done in the payroll office. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, and I, I don't know how to I, fix that when I haven't been able to fix it in 40 years. So, yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Um, I've been part of uh, salary surveys and I've had a I've had a look at people's like, well, let's compare this to other 
professions and institutions and all of that. And it's like, we have to make sure that we're actually comparing apples to apples. Now, it may not be a, a macoon apple to a macoon apple. It may be a, a, a red delicious to a macoon to a golden delicious, which golden delicious. Yeah, I don't even know what a macoon apple oh, is. Oh, no, macoon <laughs> is by far, it is the most exceptional apple. And we can have a whole show on that. Okay. <laughs> but, but I will also say the golden delicious is not my favorite, but that being said, um, but that, you know, it, it needs to be this understanding of, you know, what are we actually comparing to? And to your point, and I've had this frustration too, can't, we can't do that at this time of the year. We can't do that because of X, Y, Z. This is not in the same pay grade. You've got someone at this level versus this level. And what does it all mean? Um, it's really difficult and all that, but I, I want to highlight something is that I actually don't think it's a failure of our, our profession, but I think that we need to get entrepreneurial and we have to start to think about what are we hiring for and how do we actually position people not only for success immediately, um, but also retain success. And that, you know, being able to say to somebody up front, this is the salary Okay, like campuses that don't post salaries right now make my head hurt. Like there has to be a way to do this. All right, we need to be transparent about salaries. We also need to be honest with them and say, let me tell you something. The shelf life for this position is X number of years. There are going to be this many opportunities for you to move up and around and that sort of thing, but we can't guarantee anything. But we will make sure that when you are positioned to move on to the next institution, to do great and good work and to continue, we wanna help you to make sure that you have all the tools and you have all the confidence and you have all the abilities so that you're the best candidate possible for that next opportunity. We do an awful job making sure people know that they are value, but also know that they don't have to stay somewhere forever in order to find purpose. Their purpose is in the work. It may not be at the institution. Now, that being said, there may be some institutions that are a bad fit. If you don't think you can work at a Catholic institution or a religiously affiliated institution, don't. Don't force yourself into it. If you think you'd rather be at a small institution, then go to a small institution. But that being said, we, we see people leaving as some kind. There are too many people still to this day on these campuses that see someone's desire to find a new opportunity as a personal failure and something yeah. they need to fear. And we need to stop that. That is absolutely bonkers. And you're never going to build great teams if you are worried that people are looking for jobs. Because when people are looking for jobs and don't feel comfortable looking for a job, they will do it in secrecy. And that secrecy actually impacts your morale around your office and people know. Because here's the thing, you as a supervisor may not know someone's looking, but guess what? <laughs> Their colleagues sure as hell know. Yep. Right? Yep. yep. Beth, what are your thoughts on this? And then I'm gonna bump it over to Corey. I just think that yes to all of it. And also if you have great employees who are asking you for flexibility that you can easily provide and you're not doing it on principle or because we don't do it that way, you're dumb and you deserve it when they quit. <laughs> That's all I have to say about that. Damn. Okay. Mic drop. All right. Go, go drop your phone again, Beth. Okay. Uh, Corey, what are your thoughts? 
how am I supposed to follow that up? Like, I mean, I, I also grew up next to an apple orchard. So Laura, Macoon is a delicious apple. You are there correct. You um, you know, I'm, I'm over here thinking of, uh, I saw a couple of articles the past few weeks talking about this quiet quitting. And apparently that's oh. a new thing. And, and a lot of the feedback, you know, after I clicked on the clickbait, because that's what you're supposed to do with it, right. was um, people are also fed up about the overextended responsibilities that they have. And so many people trying to maybe reclaim a little bit more of their work-life integration to say, you know, I am, I am coming in, I am doing my job. Right. And I think, too, we have this this ethos that it is personal, that if you're not going above and beyond, that that's more than 100%, but that's mathematically impossible. And how's that all fit up? But I'm sure you all know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, it kind of hits you in the gut feeling as well. Mm -hmm. um, I think, too, you know, I remember as a younger professional, as a hall director, I would go go to work. And then when I was 24 years old, for the first few months, I came back to my apartment and I sat and I read and I had dinner and life was very uh, singularly focused. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was really a challenge and a challenge to hear from other people. Like if you want to have a life and a, and a balance of that, so you don't get totally sucked into your work, you need people to encourage you, inspire you to go find other activities. Mm -hmm. I think for many folks, uh, do that? Hmm. I am sure that many of the people, some of the people might even be on this call. Um, I think, you know, for, for folks of my generation, maybe younger generations, there's a sense of very hard striving and striving, and then they get to a place where they might feel settled, and they don't have much. They might have a stable job, they might have health insurance, they might have a retirement account, but they're looking for other things to fill their bucket. Um, and I don't know if we've done a good job about saying, hey, like, do your work, that's great, what else are you going to do? What are your other goals? What is, Laura, to your point, what is that purpose? Um, and how to help get your employees to that? Like you might spend your next one-on-one -on -one talking a little bit about work stuff, but then it's a, hey, what are you doing for you? How are we helping create a well-rounded person that's inevitably going to be your better employee? Right. And, and we have to start taking some time to actually have those conversations in supervisory meetings, as well as you know, if you're the leader of a department, being able to put out there and say, here's the thing, I know any of you, I can pull up higher ed jobs right now and I can see in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts where I'm located, there's over 5,000 jobs posted. I know any of you right now could go out and start looking for something, okay? So why not be able to put the cards right on the table and say, I want you to have value. I want you to feel like you have value in this in institution. I want you to know how much you mean to me. I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure that you're feeling like not only are you getting what you need in terms of salary, in terms of someone supporting you, in terms of someone advocating for you with the HR office and all of the things that they don't think about. But I also want to make sure that you know, let's talk about your career where you want to be in five years and how do I position you for that growth? And if that means it's here, great. But if it means it's someplace else, have at it. But that says to people, and then you have to act on it. You have to like actually start to give them more projects like Gage had from, from their, her supervisor. You need to have someone sit down with you. Like, like I know I've had with, with you, Corey and with you, Beth and say, all right, what do you want to do? 
How do we get you there? How do we, you know, like, let me look at your resume. Wait a minute. You're applying for this. Well, don't talk about that. Talk about this. Like, you know, like if you actually want to move into a spot, you got to also have a supervisor or someone in your, in your camp who's going to be able to do that for you. And we need to do a better job by that. Um, it's going to continue to happen. We're going to continue to lose people to Gage's point. People are going to leave and they're going to find their way to other, other environments. But I do want to say this in, in closing on this, on this topic, I've had more students this semester with my student population and my graduate program that I'm teaching at that came to higher ed after being in corporate for several years. Okay. So these are people that literally have said to me, I am so glad I am doing this. This is so much better. Yeah. The hours are a little bonkers at times. And there's some things I have to keep in mind and maybe I'm not going to be making as much money as I did in corporate, but you know what I don't have? I don't have toxicity. I have people, I don't have people breathing down my neck about why didn't I convert that conversation into billable hours? How come I didn't do this X, Y? And the other thing that they're saying is they actually feel like the work does have purpose. Okay. It's not just a cog. You are actually building a machine. Okay. And it's super important. And we have to keep that in mind. Um, all right. So, so we're going to close out. We're going to go with uh, the order of Beth to Corey to Gage. Uh, and we're going to say, what is your number one news story of the semester? It can be higher ed related or it could not be. So I'm going to go uh, in that order. Beth, you go first. I think my number one story is the story of how the Supreme Court handed down the Dobbs decision and then like a zillion women and other people who didn't like that decision decided to register to vote and go vote. That's right. Which I think is very cool. So that's like the, the one good thing that came out of that decision because it is otherwise awful. <laughs> it is otherwise awful. I agree. Corey, over to you. Yeah. Uh, Lori, just remind me, I was at a campus meeting last week and I had to remind folks, it's like, we're not here to make widgets. And I thought of you lovingly. Um, my, my news article or, or topic of the year is uh, debt cancellation just with everything going on and how that all kind of impacts so many of um, our current students, though I don't think they know about it, um, and so many folks who I know and hold dear to me. So debt cancellation. And Gage, open over you. Well, those were the two I had jotted down that came to mind for me. Both of those came up. I ended up going with Dobbs um, in part because I think the – you know, there's the immediate effect, there's the voting effect. But quite frankly, I was teaching when I when it came down this summer, I was I taught higher ed law again this fall. And I really had this moment of of sort of existential despair as a pseudo lawyer in that I understand the law changes over time, but to go in and teach about the idea of precedence and stare decisis and the law um trailing behind, but ultimately engaging with the changing culture and to try to teach that without being political or keeping a, um, a straight face. I, I really didn't know how to do it. And I'm not sure I did it particularly well because um, some of the fundamental principles that we rely on in the law are being shredded mm -hmm. and the consequences for all of us on that are really potentially 
things that, that are kind of hard to imagine. And that's a real downer to land on. But I am really concerned about what that says about shredding some of our norms, about um, who we are and how we think about governance and equity and who has access to an, any number of things. And it's, it's when I go down this path, it's hard not to be despairing. And I'm sorry to end on that note because this has been a really good conversation. But, but Dobbs, Dobbs has more consequences than s- simply, in, in air quotes, women's rights issues. And I think it's pretty, pretty um, important we pay attention to all of that. And I absolutely agree with with you. Um, I think that Dobbs and uh, the the splash zone of Dobbs, as I will call it, um, has created uh, a real reckoning in terms of not only how do we communicate with our students, how do we set up norms on our campuses where civil conversations and people can disagree on certain aspects of uh, women's reproductive freedom. Uh, but how do you have those conversations? And um, I actually think that free speech is uh, and and dialogue um, is going to be the thing that that comes out of this. That I hope we are positioned as a field to actually facilitate um, in uh, effective ways. Um, and the challenge will be what exactly you were putting out there, Gage, is that you know. When can you say what? <laughs> How do you say it? Okay, um, and uh, I think it's super important that we uh, actually end on that idea of how are we going to be part of those conversations moving forward. Um, and uh, that does uh, lend itself to a look ahead to next semester. Um, next semester, we'll be having thematic months. Uh, we will be returning with the th- think tanks every month. Uh, we'll be talking about current issues, but we will have uh, mergers and acquisitions. Uh, we will have a month on uh, how the outside impacts the campus. So that goes to things like gun violence, uh, uh, abortion, free speech. Uh, We are also going to be looking at the business model of higher education um, and other topics. So we want to thank you all for tuning in. Uh, This is Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. We are here on Fireside. We will be back uh, after the January break. And uh, you know what? Have a great holiday. Make the most of it. Take a break. Uh, Get off campus. And if you thinking about if you are only people that you socialize with that all wear the same outfits because you only work at the same campus, now's your time to start to reevaluate that. All right. So that's my, that's my parting, my parting thoughts to you. Have a good one, everybody. and Stay well. <laughs>